as the climax of his self-sabotage. He had lost the job by making a reckless speech about Scottish independence that ran directly contrary to his party's official policy and ensured that he would have to resign. He hoped he might one day return to his old job, but for the moment it was time to put away affairs of state and take up childish things, to look through a glass darkly over a long lunch. When he rang Hampshire to tell him the happy news, he couldn't resist asking why the prize was confined to the imperial ash heap of the Commonwealth. "'Those are the terms of the endowment,' said Hampshire dryly. "'On the wider question of why an institution as vacuous and incoherent as the Commonwealth continues to exist, my answer is this. It gives the Queen some pleasure, and that is reason enough to keep it.' "'Well, that's good enough for me.' said Malcolm, waiting tactfully until he had hung up the phone to add, "'You silly old twat!' Broadly speaking, he did not regret his decision. His secretary was busier than she had been for a good while, collecting newspaper clippings and recordings of radio interviews. Malcolm noticed an increase in the ripple effect of his presence in the Commons Bar, and an added liveliness to his conversations at dinner parties. The only aggravating aspect of the process was Hampshire's refusal to consult him about the other members of the committee. As a well-known columnist and media personality, Joe Cross, the first to be appointed, made sense by raising the public profile of the prize. She turned out to be a veritable geezer of opinions, but once Malcolm managed to make her focus, it turned out that her ruling passion was relevance. "'The question I'll be asking myself as I read a book,' she explained, is just how relevant is this to my readers? Your readers, said Malcolm. Yes, they're the people I understand, and feel fiercely loyal to. I suppose you would call them my constituents. Thanks for putting that in terms I can easily grasp, said Malcolm, without showing the patronising bitch the slightest sign of irony. The presence of an Oxbridge academic in the form of Vanessa Shaw the second recruit, was probably unavoidable. In the last analysis, Malcolm felt there was no harm in having one expert on the history of literature, if it reassured the public. When he invited her to the Commons for tea, she kept saying that she was interested in good writing. "'I'm sure we're all interested in good writing,' said Malcolm. "'But do you have any special interest?' "'Especially good writing.' said Vanessa stubbornly. The committee member Malcolm most resented was one of Hampshire's old girlfriends from the Foreign Office, Penny Feathers. She had neither celebrity nor a distinguished public career to recommend her, and a little googling soon established the emptiness of Hampshire's claim that she was a first-class author in her own right. Malcolm couldn't look at her without thinking, "'What in God's name are you doing on my committee?' He had to remind himself that she had one of five votes, and his mission was to make sure that her vote went his way. The final appointee was an actor Malcolm had never heard of. Tobias Benedict was a godson of Hampshire's, who had been a fanatical reader ever since he was a little boy. He missed the first two meetings due to rehearsals, but sent an effusive apology on a handwritten card, saying that he was there in spirit, if not in the flesh that he was reading like a madman, and that he was in love with 
All the World's a Stage, a novel Malcolm had not got round to yet. The truth was that he had no intention of reading more than a small proportion of the two hundred novels originally submitted to the committee. His role was to inspire, to guide, to collate, and above all, to delegate. In this case, he asked Penny Feathers to look into Tobias's choice, feeling that one lame duck should investigate another. He asked his secretary to skim through the early submissions, looking for his own special interest, anything with a Scottish flavour. She had come up with three novels, of which he had so far only had time to look at one. A harsh but ultimately uplifting account of life on a Glasgow housing estate, What You Staring At, really hit the spot when it came to new voices, the real concerns of ordinary people, and the dark underbelly of the welfare state. He intended to lend it his support and start a discreet campaign.